Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, April 25th, 2021. If we can believe it, we are near the end of April already. Absolute insanity. Yes, as it has been raising a little one of late. <laughs> but they we... get squirmy, y'all. So squirmy. Yes. Yeah, and the time just squirms away, I feel. <laughs> so, as we always begin now in our new world, let's begin with show ratings. And we will do that as we introduce the shows that we covered this week. So I'll begin, I suppose, by saying that I covered Face the Nation this week and Meet the Press. And so for the show ratings, I think it's a pretty simple a simple way to do it. Because in my journalism section, I've already sort of labeled the shows. And so it's very simple for me to say Face the Nation, five. Ooh, fancy. I think five. Hmm. <laughs> I think five. I'm gonna give. I it love a five. with a little scrutiny. It's like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a very, very good episode, and I'll go deeper into that in the journalism point. The only thing that was missing was this was the first week John Dickerson hosted, and I felt that if Margaret Brennan was there, she would have had an international report, and they would have been talking about what was going on in India. Oh yeah, how are you? They've been doing those international COVID around the world forever. Yes, yes. and this was a, a week where you really needed it. Yeah, there was really no discussion of that at all. So that was a real, real miss. Uh, but Especially if that, you're, you've been a leader in that space. Yeah, that right? was It seems a little weird. But other than that, it was a very, very strong episode. So I'll give that a five. Very good. For Meet the Press, that was a pretty good episode. I will give that a three. I thought they covered the issues of race and policing with a real focus. They are really focused now on doing these, you know, issue-oriented episodes, and I give them a lot of credit for it, and they tend to cover it with a lot of thought, care, and consideration. This week, not so much. This week, tried to nod in that direction, but everything came off the wheels, or I guess I should say the wheels came off the boat that doesn't make any sense no the wheels came <laughs> off the train but trains don't have wheels do they do we say the trains have wheels no trains don't have wheels the wheels came off the bus how about that yes the wheels came off the bus on this week during the panel because surprise was, surprise basically the same old panel why don't they just uh, give up give up on uh, your there anyway i anyway. will talk about that more in the journalism point so i will give that a a two it was bad it was bad overall because of that Naomi, your shows? So I covered Fox News Sunday and State of the Union. State of the Union today was hosted by Dana Bash. She and Jake Tapper alternate each week. I thought the show was fine and in some parts very good. She interviewed Kamala Harris, which I thought was a great booking, but I didn't learn a ton. And I feel like that's more because sometimes Kamala Harris can use so many words to say so very little. 
And so I didn't find a ton of value in that interview. So I think I would give State of the Union a four for that reason. There were parts that were very... That's high, though. Yeah, pretty good. So the part that worked really well for me is the interview with Senator Joe Manchin. I'm going to talk a lot about that in my journalism section today. So that alone is like three points. Very interesting. Just that interview. And Fox News Sunday. Fox News Sunday was a three, I think. I mean, okay. It was an okay. So if you are an avid consumer of the Sunday morning political shows and you are a nostalgic person, you might have liked Fox News Sunday today because it is the 25th anniversary of Fox News Sunday. Big deal. It's been on the air for 25 years. That's a long time. And Chris Wallace has been doing it for 17 and a half of those years. Also a very long time. Yeah. Long time to be doing anything. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) good job. But... This has been I learned a ton, right? So it's like very kind of sweet and sentimental and had all these like look back clips of different important well, interviews here's and stuff a question. like that. Did it honor the staff and the people who put the show together or was it just here's a highlight reel of how great we were? There was a little bit of appreciation for some of the original producers and the original host and the okay. original team, but kind mm-hmm. of really set the foundation for it. Also, Britt Hume and Juan, I forget his last name, who was often on the Fox News Sunday panel, but they are part of the original Fox News Sunday panelists. So oh. they were on talking about like the fact that they've been on the show for 25 years. Talking about a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So sweet, interesting. No, I wouldn't say interesting. It's very nice. If you wanted a nice little show, it's fine. So it started in 96 then? I guess so. 25 wow, years ago. 1996. Yeah. Flashback. Yeah, lots happened. Well, tonight's then. Oscar night and the 96 Oscars. Hmm. I know Titanic came out at the end of 96, but I think it won in 97. I don't know what won the Oscar in 96. No, I think Titanic technically might have won in 98, like January 98 or spring. Well, anyway. It was like a 97 movie. Yeah. But anyway, Fox News Sunday has been out for a while. So moral of the story, Fox News Sunday was a three. Great. So let's move on to our quality questionable... And you were talking quite a bit about Fox News Sunday. Do you want to continue or shall we move on to quality? No, let's have a nice little palate cleanser because I'm going to get real ragey. All right. So in this quality moment, and each of us only do one of these now. So I have the quality, you have the questionable. Mm -hmm. Quality this week for me are critical questions about... We like critical questions? Yes, about adjusting public health measures as people get more vaccinated and luckily, thankfully... Not luckily, but after a lot of work, COVID-19 infection rates, numbers, cases, hospitalizations continue to decline in the United States. And more importantly, like hospitalization numbers. I think we've been kind of hovering around 60,000 new cases a day, but severity has gone down considerably. So critical questions about, hey, should we reduce some of these public health measures? Are they really necessary anymore? Very important to ask. And it was asked and we saw it discussed, or at least I did, on Face the Nation and this week. Here is a bit from John Dickerson on Face the Nation speaking to none other than Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, which I I almost like paused and I was like, wait a minute. So Margaret Brennan is leaving for maternity leave. Then does that mean Scott Gottlieb is going to step up and host the show? Because he's basically been on every episode for the past year. But no, John Dickerson is there. 
and he is asking the question. So if we should change our mindset a little, should we change the policies and practices that have been put in place by the states and the federal government on, on how we behave? Well, look, I think a lot of the sacrifices we've made, and Americans have made substantial sacrifices over the last year, the things that we've asked people to do as public health officials were based on mutual consent that people understood we were doing these things to try to protect the public, but as the situation improved, we were going to pull them back. And I think oftentimes the mistake we make is that we're quicker to implement these precautions than we are to lift them, because we're worried that once we lift them, we won't be able to re-implement them. I think we need to lean more aggressively forward and look at ways to try to relax some of the provisions that don't really make as much sense anymore. And probably the ones that we should be looking at the hardest are things done outside. I think we should be thinking about lifting mask, mask ordinances outside. I think we should be uh, thinking about lifting um, limits on gatherings outside and trying to encourage people to go outside now that the weather is warming, take more activities outside in the face of declining risk overall. So there, an important question and point by Dr. Gottlieb. I found that this is really, really important that people recognize, hey, there's a sense of mutual consent here, you know? It's like the public is like, all right, we will do this because you say it's important. But when it's not important anymore, don't make us do it anymore. Like, come on, people. And then on this week, George Stephanopoulos asked this directly to Anthony Fauci. Here's Dr. Fauci's answer. Let's talk about masks. I mean, you're seeing more and more talk about it. I know the CDC is looking at perhaps revising their guidance about uh, wearing masks outdoors at this time. What's your best guidance on that at this point? You know, I don't want to get ahead of them, George, but I think it's pretty common sense now that outdoor risk is really, really quite low, particularly, I mean, if you were a vaccinated person wearing a, wearing a mask outdoors, I mean, obviously the risk is minuscule. What I believe you're going to be hearing, what the country is going to be going to be hearing soon is updated guidelines from the CDC. The CDC is a science-based organization. They don't want to make any guidelines unless they look at the data and the data backs it up. But when you look around at the common sense situation, obviously the risk is really very low, particularly if you're vaccinated. So another important critical question and kind of a nod towards where things might be going in the next week or two from the CDC. Uh, One thing that drove me a little crazy was Dr. Fauci saying, It's pretty common sense now that outdoor risk is really, really quite low. People don't use common sense in this pandemic. We've been doing it for a year. Nobody uses common sense. People are out walking their dogs wearing a mask when nobody is around. People are, as we've seen, wearing their mask over their mouth and not covering their nose. That is not common sense. People are not using common sense. People are using, you know, washing their groceries when they get them back from the store. That is not common sense anymore, right? Like, people aren't applying common sense. They are, at best, listening to their leaders who are telling them what to do because they are not immunologists. They are not experts on viruses. They have not read all the studies. They are not deep into this stuff. So don't expect people to use, quote-unquote, common sense You have to be explicit. And as Dr. Gottlieb said here, if the risk is low, stop making people do it. Stop, stop, stop. So, Dr. Fauci, please don't lean on common sense. It doesn't work. (laughs) Um, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I just thought we would be remiss not to share with our listeners that... That person you saw in the neighborhood, Brendan, who 
was riding their bike with their mask on. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> so I had a friend and polylog listener who's probably listening to this. <laughs> we Fully vaccinated. Yes, fully vaccinated. We were driving and we looked out the window <laughs> and there was a gentleman riding his, I think it was bicycle, right? It was a bicycle, He was, he was yeah. riding his bicycle with a mask on. Nobody around him. Nobody around him. Or near traffic, but no helmet on. <laughs> And it was just like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. The risk to your head riding your bicycle. Far outweighs. In traffic is is infinitely greater than your risk of contracting COVID around nobody riding your bike, which is zero. Gold. And by the way, there are helmet laws in the state of California as there are mask laws. Just FYI, people. Yes. Naomi, let's get to your questionable. Okay. So my questionable is a moment in the conversation on Fox News Sunday around police violence. Now, I'm not questioning the topic itself. I'm not. I actually encourage these conversations to be happening, especially on shows on Fox News. I think it's really important for them to happen. Chris Wallace asked questions about police violence and police reform and gun violence to Senator Lindsey Graham and then also later to Representative Karen Bass, who is, you know, one of the major House leaders working on this issue. My frustration and utter disgust is some of the strategies that Chris Wallace employed to facilitate this conversation. Specifically, there was a recent case in Ohio where a 16-year-old girl was shot and killed by the police. And there is video where she is in the middle of a altercation with some other young, you know, kind of teenage girls. She has a knife and she is shot and killed by the police when they try to get her to stop. Now, it's kind of a very quick, blurry video. It's kind of the body cam video from the police But Chris Wallace used the video itself in his interview with Representative Karen Bass. There was no warning that he was going to be using it on the website. It says trigger warning. But if you caught the show itself, there was and in the conversation itself, there is absolutely no context that he's going to be showing this girl be shot. And and, and die. And die. She she was shot four times and died. She was 16 years old. It's absolutely disgusting to have this conversation. You can talk about the case. You can talk about it in comparison to George Floyd and his murderer who was recently convicted. You can talk about it in the other recent case of Adam Toledo in Chicago. And all of these cases are a little bit different. And I'm not saying there isn't value in talking about how people are victimized or interact with the police in different ways. But to show this video is completely unnecessary. Like black communities in this country already know that (laughs) interactions with the police can often get violent. And personally for me, I'm somebody who I try to watch these videos very little because they are so gutting and disgusting and stay with me for days. And it's not It's not in not watching a video, you're not thinking about it or you're not advocating on it or you're not engaged on the issue. But 
let people decide how they want to engage on that video. And you can use your power of words and conversation to still talk about it. So, Or I, if you're going to show it, give people some warning you're going to show it. Yeah, and I would question even how much it's even necessary. Right, absolutely. So, so anyway, we're going to share the clip. We're going to beep out the part of the video because we are not a-holes. And I want to just kind of commend the way Representative Bass kind of responded to the question. But you'll hear Chris Wallace just like throw in this video and act like it's a totally okay thing to have done. I want to finish by taking a look along with you at the police shooting this week of 16-year-old Makia Bryant. Mm -hmm. Here's the video. Now, the police video makes it clear. Take a look right there, Congresswoman. Mm -hmm. She was wielding a knife, and when the police officer shot her, she was about to stab that girl right next to the car. And yet here is how White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki responded to the shooting. We know that police violence disproportionately impacts uh, black and Latino people in communities and that black women and girls, like black men and boys, experience higher rates of police violence. Congresswoman, wasn't there a knee-jerk reaction in this country? You heard it from Jen Psaki, you heard it from a lot of other people. Police violence, when in fact this wasn't police violence, this was Officer Reardon shooting, intervening to save the life of the girl who was about to be stabbed. Well, let me just say that oftentimes when this happens, absolutely there's an emotional reaction. But what Jen Psaki said, I agree with, whether it applies to this case or not, I think is not the issue. You also had Adam Toledo. 13-year-old child, you know, he had a gun, he dropped it, he raised but, his But hands. don't we need to be able to distinguish between we, case, uh, yes, in, we, between Derek Chauvin, that was murder, yes. and this, which looks we, to me like a, we, a righteous shooting. We absolutely need to distinguish, but we also need to look at policing overall. And one of the things that I hope we really address is maybe the focus needs to be on de-escalation. I know police officers are taught to shoot to kill. A lot of people raise, well, why couldn't he have shot her in the leg? Why couldn't he have done all these different things? The point is we have got to come up with a way to stop there's so many people being killed in this country. Congresswoman. So de-escalation and looking at the root causes of the problem. So as literally an expert in this issue, I think Representative Karen Bass is extremely professional and polite to the use of this video and pivots the conversation to what I think where it needs to go is why couldn't this whole situation be de-escalated? Therapists, teachers, like... So many people who work in hostile environments, other than police, are taught how to de-escalate things. But somehow a police officer needs to shoot a 16-year-old girl. Whatever. Like, that's outrageous. But if it was another guest, someone other than Karen Bass, I don't know if we would have gotten to this point. Right? It's because she's like a complete classy pro that she's able to like kind of respond to this answer. Anybody else with the use of that video, it could have easily gone completely haywire we're talking about like what the f is a righteous shooting by police and yeah that word just oh my god yeah and so it's the conversation does is not derailed by this video because of the excellent guest not because of chris wallace whatsoever and one thing that stuck out to me was chris wallace's kind of weird question where he's like this wasn't police violence police were using violence to solve a problem they saw taking place I think, like, whether Chris Wallace thinks it's righteous 
a righteous shooting or not, a shooting is violence. You know, when you go to watch the movie Saving Private Ryan, you might be on the side of the people fighting the Nazis, but the Americans. But it's still violent. But it's still got a violence warning on it because it's rated R, because it is violence. People are dying. People are being shot. Whether you think it's righteous or not, it is violence. And so when people are concerned about violence and want to de-escalate violence... Yeah, it's it could, that, it, it, it can it's be still violent regardless it's, right. of whether it's police. Exactly. It's not only violent if they're like, quote unquote, criminals. Right. It's violence because someone literally was shot and killed. Yes, you are using tactics that hurt people. It causes pain. It can cause death. It is the use of violence for whatever reason. And so people complaining about police violence is not just saying that this is unprovoked violence. But it's violence nonetheless. It's right. the use of violence to solve an issue. Simple as that. I mean, I think he's just his, you know, he's, his always, very, he's is, always concerned about semantics, right? When it comes to, I don't know. Fucking infrastructure. Like infrastructure. <laughs> but when it comes to police violence, he's like, well, this isn't violence. It's righteous shooting. Oh, yes. my God. It's like, I can Let's show vi- it on TV. We don't need to warn people about the violence because there's no violence in it, right? What? He, he thinks Saving Private Ryan should be rated G. Let's show it to eight-year-olds right now. Okay, Brendan. <laughs> I'm, I'm so upset. Where? What do you want to start with first? Something about politics or something in journalism in your section? So are we going to take a break on talking about police violence, Brendan? No, not at all. The reason is that basically all three of my shows spent a lot of time looking at the issues surrounding policing. And of course, it makes sense because of the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial that was reached by the jury that he was guilty on all counts for the killing of George Floyd. We are now awaiting sentencing, which will be coming in a few weeks. All three of the shows I looked at covered it in various ways and spent a significant amount of time talking about it. Not necessarily all their time for all the shows, but some of the shows, it it was most of their time. I wanted to look at this because from a journalism perspective, these conversations were managed in different ways. And I thought it was very easy to look at at a quick snapshot of each show in saying, basically, here's how to cover it in a bad way, here's how to cover it in a good way, and here's how to cover it in the best way. Let's begin with the bad, and we'll make our way towards the best. So this week, so this week wasn't bad in every way that they covered this issue, but they were in the biggest way they covered it, in the longest way they covered it, and that is the way they covered it in their panel their powerhouse roundtable. And of course, on this roundtable were some of the familiar faces we have come to know and loathe. <laughs> I can't believe we've been doing this show for so long and haven't done that yet. Know <laughs> and loathe. Good job. Yeah, well, I don't like loathing things. But Chris <laughs> Surprise, Christie, surprise, I don't mind. <laughs> this is a panel that talked about a lot of things, you know, some things other than policing, but it mostly talked about the issues of policing. And it was managed just terribly, largely because of who was on the panel, but also how it was, where the conversation really went, right? It was covered very much like a political issue. And it was disappointing because issues of policing are very complex and involve lots of different members from lots of different types of communities. And yet the way it was covered on the panel was that Chris Christie the former Republican governor, white former Republican governor of New Jersey, was the first person, he got the first question, and he was the last person who got to talk on it. He got to have the last word on this issue. What? 
Does that make any sense at all? Anyway, we're not going to hear from Christy in the <laughs> clips that I'm having here. But even so, you'll get a sense in the back and forth about how kind of on the surface and in some ways petty the conversation was and just political because of some of the voices that were on it. Now, there was one, I thought, pretty good voice on it, and that was the host of On One. And this is Angela Rye. She's the former executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus. She seemed to be speaking with a lot more experience on these issues than some of these other guests. So you'll hear her voice, but you'll also hear from Sarah Fagan, Republican strategist. You'll hear from her quite extensively, and you'll hear the voice of Heidi Heitkamp, former Democratic senator from North Dakota. The first voice you will hear is Angela Rye. Then you'll hear from Fagan, then Heidi Heitkamp, Fagan again, Heitkamp, and Fagan. The Columbus Police Department isn't about one bad apple. It's about an entire department. So we have to talk about qualified immunity without fighting with buzzwords, but really talking about how we solve for a system that by design from its inception was designed to capture and return enslaved people back to their masters. If we can't uproot what was intended, we will forever have this problem, and we have to be willing to have honest discourse. Well, in the case of Derek Chauvin, the system worked because he's going to spend most of the rest of his life in jail, as he, as he should. You know, but we run the risk of overreaction. Um, you know, we need police reform in this country, and I think we can get it. And it's, it's, it's in many ways a layup for Joe Biden. Republican senators uh, will not go against Tim Scott on this issue. So if the president can get a deal with Tim Scott, there will be a package. S and Sarah, if, if, if people thought the system worked, um, Chauvin, Chauvin uh, wouldn't have been a police officer. Wait, but, but, and and but my um, point is that, that people the would be alive. But, but my point is... This is a this is a subject that has gone so far because of all the work that's been done. If we lower temperatures and we start talking about how we can reform police systems, but also recognize that there's a lot of history here that needs to be. Uh, of course there does. Uh, there, 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 there needs to be police reform. We all agree on that. At the same time, we can't have the White House at the podium every time there's an altercation you know, say that it is systemic racism, because it is not. There are, instances, there are instances that are of systemic racism and they need to be addressed. There are instances where a cop simply makes, in a split-second decision, a very terrible call. And there are instances when the cop makes the right call and it's a tragic outcome. And, you know, right now, every single altercation is being presented as systemic racism. And that's just not accurate. So you'll notice most of the conversation there, what is it about? Well, we don't see a lot of statistics. We don't see examples of actual situations in police departments or examples of police reform. We don't see proposals about reform. It's just very much devoid of a lot of substance. There are complaints about what the White House is saying at the podium, which is a very kind of inside Washington concern. And there's just not a lot of substance being discussed. And then you have points being made like, oh, well, the system's working because Derek Chauvin is going into jail. When, uh, hello, the question is about policing, and clearly it wasn't working because this man was a police officer. Like, how can you say that that's the system working? It doesn't make any sense, especially since moments before she said, Sarah Fagan said that this is an example of the system working, it was noted on the very same panel by another panelist 
that Chauvin, as we learned last week, had done basically the exact same thing to a teenager before he did it to George Floyd and had continued being employed. So this argument that the system's working sounds like an argument that makes this conversation not about police reform, but about the political football of policing, right? That's what it seems to be that this panel is about, the political football of policing. And that's a true disservice to the topic. I think the fact that none of these people work in this issue deeply is reflective of their non-existent data, that it's just kind of more their reflections about political strategy rather than research and study and statistics to drive the policy. This is a political conversation and not a policy conversation. Yes, exactly. Now, that's on the bad side of things. Here's the good side of things. Meet the Press spent a lot of time on this issue. It was right in the intro. Chuck Todd, he opened the show saying, look, we've got, you know, the Derek Chauvin verdict and people might think that's a good thing, but it might not be that great. I thought that Chuck Todd actually did a good job of it in his intro here. So let's go ahead and play that intro briefly. And then I'm going to we're going to look at the panel on Meet the Press. Did Derek Chauvin's trial and conviction change anything? It's hard to know. Right now, there are calls for video to be released in the fatal police shooting last week of Andrew Brown in North Carolina. But most cases of alleged police brutality against African-Americans do not have video that puts the lie to statements like the one the Minneapolis Police Department put out. Most cases aren't televised, gavel to gavel. Most cases don't have the whole world watching. Yes, there are some hopeful signs that Democrats and Republicans can work out a compromise on police reform. But until the country feels the criminal justice system is fair, when there's no benefit of video and no spectacle, we won't really know whether things have changed or if justice was served only in this one particular case. I thought that was a very mature way to look at the situation, particularly from a journalist where we often see journalists reading everything into one individual piece of news, right? Oh, one person's bit by a shark. You know, the, the beach is dangerous suddenly, right? And everyone is at risk rather than, well, that was one incident. I, I found this a very, very mature journalistic way to look at the situation and to see it more broadly. And that maturity was also extended into the panel discussion. So this is kind of the flip side of what we saw on this week. So on the panel on Meet the Press, we heard from Eugene Robinson. It wasn't all new faces and new people, but it was a much more mature conversation. Eugene Robinson was there, Washington Post columnist, NBC News correspondent Morgan Radford, who's covered a lot of these issues in detail, and Malcolm Gladwell, as well as Peggy Noonan. I wasn't super wild by the total, you know, by the full range of people on this panel. They weren't all deep experts in the topic, but they had a much deeper conversation than we saw on this week. Take a listen to this segment. The first voice you'll hear is Eugene Robinson, and then the next panelist you'll hear is Morgan Radford, the reporter, and then closing out Malcolm Gladwell. And you'll notice how Chuck Todd is actually pivoting and inviting other guests into the conversation rather than letting them talk over each other, interrupt each other, and produce terrible crosstalk, as we hear often on This Week. But should police officers, fully armed, you know, with revolvers and tasers and everything else, be the ones to respond to a lot of, of 
kinds of ordinary situations, like a routine traffic stop, like uh, you know other other situations that you might encounter, or should there be other kinds of of of, of first responders? Morgan. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what a lot of the voters we've spoken to have said, that that defunding was really muddled messaging, right? This is really about reimagination and reinvestment. And a lot of those voters looked, for example, to Camden, New Jersey, right? This is a police force that was overhauled in 2013 and then saw their violent crimes drop by 40 percent. So, you know, to Peggy's point where they're saying police need more, a lot of the voters are saying, yeah, but what are you going to do once we give you more? So instead of calling 911 and just having an officer, they're saying, let's actually have a more comprehensive system that involves a mental health care worker, a social worker, someone who is able to de-escalate those situations in those very communities where people need it most, Chuck. Malcolm, quickly, before I go to break. Yeah, I just want to follow up. I totally agree with what the last two uh, speakers have said, and that is that, you know, we have systematically underfunded uh, mental health services in this country. We have systematically ignored the homelessness problem, and we have let the police, we have forced the police to be the last line of kind of uh, social support for those troubled uh, populations. And that is nuts. Like, you know, you can't do that and expect to have an optimal law enforcement outcome. So I thought this was, once again, a very mature conversation focused on reform. Chuck Todd is very much throughout this panel saying what can be done to stop these incidents and reverse the statistics that show such disparities in policing. And kind of going back to the conversation of a political conversation versus a policy conversation, I think it's no surprise to anybody that like we in Polylog appreciate policy conversations usually more. And that's not to say that there's no use in talking about politics because that makes it possible whether something is passed or the feasibility of something or what party, whoever's in power is working on, whatever, right? But I think what is reflective here in the first example with this week versus the example here on Meet the Press is who is impacted. And on Meet the Press, they're trying to understand like what people want in their own respective communities. Right. What do they want the interactions with the police to look like? Who do they want to show up at their door? It's kind of like the actual lived reality of the issue versus on this week. The worst example is more about how is this going to play in Washington? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you you notice Morgan Radford, she's bringing in statistics there, right? And data about people and voters she's spoken with to kind of fact check and and corral the conversation more towards reality and not just opinion. And then finally, I wanted to finish with what I thought was the best show to cover this issue, and that was Face the Nation. Now, Face the Nation didn't have quite an insightful introduction or kind of closing or lead everyone through the topic in the way that Meet the Press did in a very impressive way. But Face the Nation had, I felt, one of the best approaches, and that is just to invite a lot of true experts on the issue onto the show and to ask intelligent questions that informed and inspired a lot of interesting thinking in the audience. So I originally was going to have more clips to this, but when I got to looking at it, I was like, oh no, there's one clip. And that is the voice of NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund President and Director Counsel Cheryl Eiffel. Take a listen to John Dickerson's conversation with her. 
I wonder if you think there's also common cause that can be made with a lot of police officers who express this sentiment when I talk to them. They say, you know, we're in a system where these communities we work in have been failed by education, by the job system. Uh, there are guns everywhere, and we're being asked to be the, the go in there and and be, and sort of face all of these problems on our backs. And that requires a broader lens too. Would you agree? I agree. I'm so glad you said that, John, because this is the place when people talk about making common cause uh, with existing police officers. It's not about having a pancake breakfast or playing basketball. It's about some real honest talk. Police officers need to begin to be honest about the fact that open carry laws uh, and concealed carry laws actually make them nervous. Uh, it endangers them. They don't like people having guns on the street and having concealed carry and walking around with weapons. It makes them nervous. But you don't hear police organizations or law enforcement organizations telling the truth, the things that they will say, say behind closed doors about how they feel about these gun laws. It is also true that rather than actually solve the problems of our community, problems of education, problems of poverty, po problems of home homelessness, we have shifted all of the resources to deal with those problems into our criminal justice system. And we've used the criminal justice system as a holding pen for resolving the, the core problems that any healthy democracy has to solve. And that's the conversation we need to be having now. We are now in a moment where we should be able to look squarely in the face the issues that have to be addressed that relate to our young people, that relate to jobs, that relate to homelessness, that relate to the mental health crisis happening across the country, and that co COVID will only exacerbate. We need to be putting our resources and attention to those problems and not shunting them off to the criminal justice system and asking police officers, armed officers, to address issues that we have been too cowardly to address as a democracy. What an impressive broad view. I mean, I feel like we've just kept rising up from the petty to the policy to a broad democratic look at how we deal with the problems in our society. Seems very apt that the conversation would get to this level with John Dickerson. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, Dickerson, of course, as a historian, I think brings that broader look at the sweep of things. He invited conversation like that with Sherilyn Eiffel right before this clip. She made a really interesting point about the history of policing in our country and how it's connected to the civil rights era and that in the civil rights era, there were three really important landmark pieces of legislation, but not one of them really addressed policing. Like they weren't able to get it done then and we're still struggling with it now. But I was very impressed with this and this is just one piece. I thought it was probably the most interesting clip, which is why we made it the clip. But we also heard from actual policymakers like Republican Governor Mike DeWine, who's an actual governor, not a former governor. And he had some interesting policy suggestions like state licensing boards for police, which are important in the sense of if a police officer does something wrong in one police force with a state licensing board, it's not as easy to go to another police force and get the same job again, which today it's way too easy to do and police often do it. And then we also heard from the Houston chief of police talking about, and this is Troy Finner, talking about how rather than just looking at what happened during a, an incident, a violent incident, it's important to look at everything that led up to that moment and for people of all sides to think about what brought a police officer to use violence to solve that issue. There's sometimes a knee-jerk reaction 
among other police officers, among Republicans, to say, look, this police officer did, you know, what was necessary in this violent situation, in this dangerous situation. They pulled their gun, and that's what was necessary. But it's important to look at what led up to that moment. Why did it get to that position of escalation, of, of high tension, where violence ended up erupting. Police officers are also responsible often in trying to defuse those situations. And if they had defused them a little better earlier on or had those skills and techniques at their disposal, or maybe if they weren't police to begin with, maybe things wouldn't have led up and gotten to that place of violence. This is a real education in how to cover a complex issue that is important and often overlooked or covered in passing. Naomi, what stood out to you in journalism this week? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about the Joe Manchin interview I heard on State of the Union. Now, specifically, what stood out to me is the absolutely phenomenal follow-up questions and just very active listening and natural responses by Dana Bash in this interview. I was surprised that I felt this way about this interview, mainly because I feel a little like itchy about all these profile pieces about Joe Manchin. And I was like, I'm contributing to it because so many of them are like Joe Manchin. Like he's the man to watch. Joe Manchin has so much power. Joe Manchin. Who is he? What does he want? Joe Manchin. He's the most important man in the Senate. Yeah. Most powerful man in the Senate. Like, All of them, all of them are doing the same thing and each of them gives such little value. Now, that's not to say that Joe Manchin doesn't deserve any attention. It is important to kind of think who important players are in the Senate and what they're trying to do. But what I feel like so many of those profile pieces fail to accomplish, they don't make it explicit about what exactly he's doing or what he's not doing or what he's trying to really advocate for or what he's trying to stall and deflate and stop. Like, it's all just like speculative, like, hmm, I wonder. It's almost fawning coverage. Yeah, it's absolutely fawning coverage. Yeah, you get the crown today. You're you're doing great. And it seems like... Look at all the power you've accumulated. Yeah, they're like salivating after this story. And it's so boring. The reason I'm calling out this interview. You're saying the coverage is boring. The salivating coverage is boring. Yes, exactly. Not not this interview I'm going to talk about right now. This interview, I think, was excellent because Dana Bash did the opposite of that. She tried to really get him to say explicitly what he was willing to do, what he wanted, what his strategies were. It's just so much more productive, (laughs) like so much more productive. The first example of this is in kind of the beginning-ish of the interview, where Joe Manchin is so proud of the recent bipartisanship, the recent bipartisan accomplishment of the Senate in addressing Asian American hate. And as we start this clip, the he that Joe Manchin is talking about is actually President Biden, and that Joe Manchin is talking about all the different things that are in the infrastructure bill. All the things that he has stated that's needed is needed. To what extent we have to go in that and go through the process of having our hearings and looking at a markup in a committee and then seeing, having professionals come in, going to the floor with an amendment process. By that time, you're going to have all different sides coming to agree, hopefully to agree on something. Just take what we just did last week, which was the uh, hate crimes bill. Who would have thought we'd have gotten 94 to 1? Think about that. People wouldn't have expected Democrats and Republicans to be in unison 
on that, and we did, but it had a process on but, the floor. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. It's hard to find bipartisanship, but one would think that condemning hate crimes against Asian Americans. You would think all these things make sense, okay? But this is, these are real policy Well, these policies here. This is so, it's so small, but so important. Now, we should not be lauding senators for passing the most basic response against Asian American hate. Like, why did it take you this long? (laughs) Like, it's, like, it's something that Congress should have been able to move so much faster on. And it's, a reflection of the snail pace of the work that even something like this would have to take so long. Yeah, I think Dana Bash is just fundamentally in, in, and by the way, I'm very interested to hear this whole segment you have, Naomi, because I'm interested to know how she did and hear from Manchin himself. But it just sounds like she's like, I'm taking the legs out from that argument because it doesn't really hold muster yeah especially if you're we're now going to talk about a extremely substantive policy proposal by the white house like you're going to say that those same strategies are going to work with what a two trillion dollar infrastructure bill sure why not we're just going to work real hard it doesn't make any sense yeah so the second example of dana bash kind of being just so on point and, and so on top of every answer that Joe Manchin provides here is when Joe Manchin expresses the fact that he thinks the bill is too big and it should be separated from traditional infrastructure to all the other goodies that President Biden wants to include. Dana Bash doesn't really understand Senator Manchin's strategy for reaching all those other accomplishments that supposedly can happen. I do think they should be separated because when you start putting so much into one bill, which we call an omnibus bill, makes it very, very difficult for the public to understand. When you talk about infrastructure, they understand infrastructure. Internet is a new infrastructure that we didn't have before, and it should be. But you're talking about transit, airports, rail systems, the, the, uh, air, the lines as far as our electricity, which is the grid system. All of these things need upgraded. We have to make sure with the new energy coming on, that we're able to get it to market. So all of this has to be incorporated. That's infrastructure, what we would call traditional infrastructure. The human infrastructure is something that we're very much concerned about. And when you think about all that we have done in the last year, and plus the COVID bill this year, the American Rescue Plan, an awful lot has been done there too. So we have to see what the effects of all that is. So just to be clear, it sounds like you're supporting a smaller package with what you deem traditional infrastructure. More targeted, Um, And would you tackle everything else with 51 votes through the reconciliation process? No. If people would just think about, if we go through the process that we're supposed to, we never used to use uh, uh, filibuster. And reconciliation is only used for budget. And that's why you have the guardrails put on with the bird rule. So we have to get back to getting it into the committees, let the committee chair and the members of those committees work it in jurisdictions, whichever it comes to. I'm chairman of energy. Energy pro- uh, projects would come to me. Then we would work it, give it back to the majority leader. They put it on the floor with an open amendment process that's germane. Once you go through all of that, you know, Bert, Bob Bird, when he was majority leader, he keep us here like, Friday night, Saturday until was, we got it. That was a long time ago. Well, but still, but yeah, things work. Culture. Things work. Uh, President Biden. I really appreciate Deanna Bash's follow-up question here, because what she's trying to do is trying to get Senator Manchin to explain how this quote-unquote human infrastructure components of President Biden's infrastructure bill 
proposal. Where where does it go to next if it's not part of this omnibus bill? If you're not going to be willing to vote on that with the 51 reconciliation party vote, then, then nothing's going to happen. Just say you don't want to do anything. But so many times people are just like, oh, he wants a smaller bill. Like Then the other part of that is you're not doing anything on the other components. Right. And it's so bizarre, too, because he wants a smaller bill, but he still wants everything that's in the big bill. He just wants to break it up because he thinks by breaking it up, it will follow the process right. that they did. He wants to pass Bird... two separate bills. Yeah. Yes. When... The Senate can barely pass anything. Okay, so last example of Dana Bash's kind of really targeted follow-up questions is same issue around this infrastructure bill, but specifically how to pay for it and whether corporations should be targeted to pay for this bill. But when you have reports from professionals uh, that say that $400 billion to $1 trillion not even collected in the loopholes we had, we've eviscerated the IRS. They don't have the guts or basically the, the firepower they had before, all of this thing should be explored before we start just raising taxes exponentially. So you don't support raising taxes at all right now? Oh, yeah. I always support, basically, I'm, 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 I'm supporting anything that makes common sense and is reasonable. But if you're so just saying raising taxes-, taxes for the sake of raising taxes and not collecting what taxes have already been owed, and we're not What if you did it off, together? Well, you look at everything together and make sure. And you look at the basically the scope of the program of how much they want and see if that's necessary or needed. I but- guess my question is, if there's somebody out there wondering if their taxes are going to, if they're wealthy, you know, part of the half of the top 1% wondering, are my taxes going to be raised? And looking to you, Joe Manchin, I- to answer that question, what's the answer? Oh, I think that basically you will be paying your fair share if your taxes are raised. But basically, have you been paying your taxes at all? The way you're able to report being in the super wealthy or have you been able to use different pass-throughs and different bypasses or loopholes that have been in the system? We're going to close all those. We have to. So his proposal to pay for this traditional infrastructure, which he thinks is the priority, is to close the tax loopholes in our tax code. These are just like straight-up Republican talking points at this point. Well, he, it sounds like he's open to other stuff, but he wants to do this first. He seems like someone who, and you know, I'm trying to understand. I mean, I read that super long profile of him, but he seems like from this interview, from the clips that you're showing to me, somebody who is all about process. All and he wants about process. Every, you know, these things have to happen first before we do these things. I'm for the other things, but I want these things first. And that's how we do it. And it's not going to be done otherwise because I'm Joe Manchin and I was crowned king of the Senate. He seems like he'd be a very difficult dinner guest. He's <laughs> like, you need to serve me this food first in this order. And if you do it wrong, then I'm going to leave. And by the way, when I leave, I'm taking all the food with me. And you can't enjoy your meal either. But I want everything. But it has to be in the right order. It just has to. That's how it was in the 80s. We ate the food in the right order. I just see too many interviews, and not necessarily with Joe Manchin, every single one, but people say, people, senators, congressional leaders say that the bill is too big, but they won't be explicitly asked, are the other things not priorities for you this year? Do you not want to do anything on childcare this year? Do you not want to do anything on housing this year? And like, I am all for every conversation about what is infrastructure in this bill? Is it appropriate? But the comprehensive conversation is, if you're not willing to include it in this bill, when are you? Or are you? do you want to touch it at all? 
Because what the Biden administration is saying here by this proposal saying all these things are important and are all worth addressing. And what Congress and what the Senate needs to say and respond is, yes, and we're going to work on it to find a compromise or only these parts are important to us right now. And I just wish more journalists would force our elected leaders to be that explicit because we shouldn't have to be like reading all the tea leaves to understand what people think is important or not. Yeah, the tea leaves are driving me crazy. It's I don't have, I don't have time for this. I do not have time for all this kind of like work around. It, it, it's just so unnecessary. So those are my points. Dana Bash was not here to just let Joe Manchin drone on and on and on. She wants to know where he stands, what he's willing to fight for, and what does that look like? So more people should be doing that, not just with Manchin, but with everyone. Absolutely. It was very good. And I definitely want to listen to that that whole interview. Well, and this is my last thing. This interview was actually right after the interview with Vice President Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. where I was just like, I'm learning nothing. And she's saying not much. And so it was actually such a breath of fresh air for Dana Bash to be much more on top of the follow up questions in this interview. Than and she was with I mean, she Vice asked President good questions, Harris. but Vice President Harris just didn't say a ton. Brendan, something in politics. Do you have thoughts? Yeah, I'm I guess some- you do. I do. I have something small that stood out to me from this week. It's at the end of the show. It was very different from what we normally see on this week. I feel like the endings are all over the place on this program. But in, this week it was very... On the Sunday morning shows or specifically this week? Specifically this week. It, it's it's just all over the place. But anyway, they had a special segment at the end of today's episode of this week where they handed over the reins to ABC's chief meteorologist, Ginger Z, and she interviewed Biden's national climate advisor, Gina McCarthy. And so it was this interview conducted by a meteorologist to a climate advisor. So it was all in the hands of the experts. And it ended up being very interesting. And there was one particular thing that stood out to me in what we heard from Biden's climate advisor. So I'm going to go ahead and play the clip. And then I'll tell you what it was that really presages a different way of talking about some of these issues in politics. How and what will you prioritize so that we can make the biggest dent in this crisis for people? Well, it's not that we won't look to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate, but I think the point that I'm trying to make here is that we can do it in a way that benefits people now. We can do it in a way that looks at health benefits, particularly for the environmental justice communities that have been hammered by pollution far too long, less investment than being made than in other communities. And we can look at opportunities to actually bring new solutions to the table that will show people that that it's possible to win this battle and that the, the way to win it are things that are going to be better for us. And I imagine within the $2 trillion of infrastructure, those are the examples. Who's going to get the jobs first? We've got to do a lot of electric infrastructure work there to get them clean by 2035. But the most important thing I think that, that President Biden is really focused on is that if we do this right, we're going to grow a lot of jobs. So yeah, that background music, especially hearing it isolated here, feels very distracting. But the thing that stood out to me was... This idea of talking about climate change, not in the words of Bernie Sanders, where it's an existential crisis and the world is going to end if we don't do something about climate change, 
but instead saying we want to focus on the benefits here. And we hear from McCarthy of the Biden administration a lot of different types of benefits. She talked about health benefits. She talked about environmental justice benefits. She talked about helping communities. She talked about infrastructure, electric infrastructure. And she also talked a lot about jobs. And this really struck me because I feel like so much of the discussion in politics around climate change in particular, and also a number of other issues, have been driven by very negative, negative imagery about lives disrupted, about disasters, about famine, about strife, about, you know, the end of our ecosystem. Not to say that none of those things aren't ahead of us, but to say that, look, it's it's something to be focusing all your messaging on this topic in a very negative, negative light. And here we're seeing something different. We're seeing an attempt being made by the Biden administration to reframe the issue around benefits rather than risks. This is fascinating to me, and there's actually quite a bit of data to back up that talking in a positive way, even about risks, talking in a positive way about how changes in behavior can do positive things, can be a lot more effective to the general public than talking in the negative. So looking through this, I found an analysis from Cornell University's Food and Brand Lab, and they looked at 43 different studies looking at nutrition messaging related to public health campaigns. And what they found were that positive messages work a lot better. For example, saying things like, if you quit smoking using this helpline, you can save almost $2,000 a year, works a lot better at motivating people to stop smoking than a message that says, smoking kills you, you know? And in fact, we've seen a lot more positive messages out there in the public health health sphere as a result of studies like this. And so I think this political messaging is just kind of catching up to that issue. And I wonder if we'll see similar reframing about benefits around other issues that could have, you know, a negative frame or have been used in a negative frame. For example, issues like gun violence could be another one. You could do it on so many issues, right? right? Or policing. There's so many positive things that reform can bring to people beyond avoidance of negative effects. One thousand million bajillion percent. So that was my something in politics that I thought was rather interesting. And we had that little, you know, background music as well. (laughs) I should have just continued the music while throughout this entire segment. It truly was a little weird. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Naomi, did anything in politics stand out to you in the two shows you covered? Yes. So my something in politics was the interview with Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on Fox News Sunday. And it's been a while since I've heard an interview with Representative McCarthy. He's not quite the recluse that McConnell is in terms of avoiding press, but he still hasn't been on in quite a bit of time. So I thought this interview was interesting for a couple of reasons. In particular, it just seemed to me like the Republican Party was underestimating and borderline almost insulting American voters, specifically Republican voters, who have different sentiments than the kind of party line. And I feel like McCarthy here doesn't really explain very well why the party is going one way when 
the sentiment of their voters is clearly going another. There's a couple of examples that reflect this, in particular when Chris Wallace is talking to McCarthy about this infrastructure bill, going kind of back to it. And Chris Wallace shares some really interesting poll data that makes it really clear that American voters are for this way more than the Republican Party is. But according to the Fox News poll, and I want to put another one up, Republicans are on the losing side of both of these issues. Take a look at this. And I understand your point about what is infrastructure. When asked about the president's $2 trillion, and we put it up there, $2 trillion infrastructure plan, 49% favor it, while 41% oppose. And on how to pay for it, 56% favor raising taxes on businesses, while 63% favor raising taxes on people earning over $400,000. Don't Republicans risk looking like you are more concerned about protecting corporations and fat cats. No, because what you'll see is you say the public likes the coronavirus bill. When they learn more what's in it, when they learn about the waste, the fraud, the abuse, the corruption, that San Francisco gets 90% of all their deficit taken care of, and they spend that money for the homeless to get drugs, marijuana, well, we don't alcohol. Know that yet. No, no, that's exactly what it's going for in the coronavirus bill that you just passed. And you're well, saying suppo- it's popular. No, well, wait a minute. I mean, supposedly it's going to take care of first responders and the result is they could use money for other things. No, no, it takes 95%. We want schools to open. Kids have been out of school for a year. Two-thirds of this money for schools doesn't even go till two more years. It pays for the health care for illegal immigrants. It give it gives but, but prisoners respond to my, respond to, to the issue that I brought up in the yeah. poll. So I just feel like uh, I don't know. Like shouldn't don't the Republican you know RNC the Republican Party don't they pay pollsters good money to understand what the sentiment of their voters are and how to talk about it and how to have good messaging and talking points to connect the platform to the voters. Like it seems so off to just say, well, they don't know how it's being used yet. It's like, well, wait until they find out what's really happening. They're going to be just as pissed as us. But they did the same thing when they said, oh, well, uh, of course our voters support it because they're getting money and and checks are being sent to them. It's like, yeah. They'll support anything (laughs) where money's going to them. Of course they're going to support it. But, you know, we can see through that, unlike our voters who are just interested in the money we see that there's other things in it that we don't like and it's like boy what a nice way to insult your voters it's it's truly insulting it's so insulting to their voters what incentive is there to stay loyal to that party it's very strange speaking of americans are okay with getting money wallace makes the point that people are okay with taxes going up if it's going up not on them, but on other people, specifically other wealthy people. And similarly, Kevin McCarthy has such a bad answer. If you're going to tax big corporations, if you're going to tax people making more money than I am, I'm okay with it. I think what people want is fairness in the tax code. And and think about what they're really looking at. You just asked them, do they support infrastructure? America says yes. But I think when America found out just 6% is going to the roads, that they're not going to be built for more than a decade, that we spend more on subsidizing electric car than we do on roads, bridges, and airports in this bill, I don't think that will be popular. But what we should read in that is that we should work together. In your same poll, it would say to a two-to-one margin, the American public wants this president to work with the Republicans to find a solution. 
We're going to hit 100 days. I have not met with the president one time nor had one conversation with him. We have a crisis at a border that he created. He, the person he put in charge, the vice president, hasn't even been down to see it. She thinks the idea is to have a Zoom call with the president of Mexico and pay people to plant trees on the other side. That's not going to stop those on the terrorist watch list we've arrested or the cartels from making our border less secure. The question, just, just to return to it, was going back to how people feel about corporations being taxed and the average American being okay with corporations getting taxed more. And somehow he's talking about planting trees on the border. On the border and Zoom calls. There's like such a blatant and gross like strategy of deflection and attack. Yeah. But it comes off so pathetic. Like at least have some tact about it. Like it, it's just done so poorly that it's laughable to me. Oof. I mean, I hope they pay or get better pollsters to help them with their messaging is what I'm saying. If you're a Republican and you think this is persuasive, send me an email because I do not understand. It just seems like they have to be obstructionists to the Biden agenda, which I'm not surprised by that. Okay, but at least be good at it. Be competent in your opposition. Well, it's so interesting. I feel like this is this is going to be a real test when we see what happens here. You know, Republicans learned through Mitch McConnell during the Obama years that obstruction could get them elected. If they said no, no, no to everything that Obama did, then Obama failed and they could say, look, Obama's failing to solve the problems because we're not working with him. I mean, they didn't say that part, right? But obstruction equaled obama's failure equaled they were re they were elected right the republicans were elected and they're clearly ready to try that strategy all over again right totally. obstruction 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 before that the idea might be let's be a little bipartisan and we'll both share in the benefits of saying look we all helped solve your problems right that was the old paradigm Things could be bipartisan. There could be bipartisan wins. And Joe Biden gets some votes for it. And Republican senators and representatives get votes for it in their district by saying, look, we did something good. Now they're in this new paradigm where obstruction is the way to go. But for obstruction to work for them politically, two things have to happen. Number one is Biden has to fail. Your obstruction has to mean that Biden doesn't succeed without you, because if he succeeds without you, then you have been the one obstructing and he's succeeded. You get no credit for the good thing and the good thing does happen. He gets credit for it. And why would they invite you in? You know, why would uh, voters vote you back in? That's number one. Biden has to fail. Well, so far he hasn't. So that hasn't been working very well. Number two is the voters and the press in particular have to not notice that your goal is obstruction, 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 obstruction. The voters have to think, oh, you're willing to work with them, or they don't really see your obstruction as being that corrosive on the system. But that's kind of not working as much either, right? Like, I don't think that's, I don't think the voters, and in particular the press, are as blind to it or as gullible as they were during the 
the Obama years. So they're trying to do this trick of obstruction again, and they think it's going to work politically. And maybe, maybe their only hope is that Republican media has become so insular that voters who vote Republican don't see the mainstream media and don't see that Republicans' real goal is obstruction. I, I don't know. That's a really interesting point. Obstruction used to mean success and accomplishments for the Republican Party. And it's to be determined if that same strategy will still work eight years later. And maybe the messaging, the messenger matters a lot too. I'm curious as to, has anyone been able to do that well other than McConnell? I don't know. I don't know. But as a result, you get answers like you see here from McCarthy, who... Who, who seems like upset that like he isn't being invited to lunch yeah. and there's Zoom calls happening <laughs> without him. It's it's just so it's just really dumb, guys. It's not great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. I've been, you know, when we started Polylog, it was a lot easier to praise Republicans for. Was it? No, it was easier to praise them for intelligent or reasonable or thoughtful or engaging messages that they were deploying on the Sunday shows. And I feel like of late, the messages have been about as dumb as that Wall Street Journal headline saying that the UN ambassador was on her Blame America tour. So dumb. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like Like the level of discourse has plummeted yeah it's kind of disappointing or it's quite disappointing frankly and yet it 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 seems to pass muster on the republican side and then when it's when it's subjected to any critical you know questioning it kind of just falls apart in your hand like paper that's just which is why i want to kind of really give praise to shows like meet the press when they're doing these topic specific kind of dives when you know even chris wallace has karen bass on to talk about gun violence because she's been working on this so closely like when you're bringing people to elevate the conversation you're like literally giving us hope that it's worth it to keep watching but when all of your show cough cough this week is full of pundits and talking so at the surface about everything you make it really hard for us to stay committed to to watching you and being interested and wanting to talk about what we heard to other people just all of it all right well that's it for polylog this week and every week we encourage you to make your dialogue count and this week we encourage you to i feel like i want to like see a little book of all of our dialogue challenges to make sure we're not like ever repeating them but it's okay to repeat i mean why not some dialogues are worth repeating brendan there there we go how about that's the challenge that is the challenge have a conversation that you've had before and see if it takes you in a new direction oh that's so nice i love it so you can email us something you've already emailed us you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can follow me at beastidal on twitter yeah you can tweet at us another repeat tweet tweet that'd be great if you want to do that we're at polylogcast and i am at soto naomi underscore thanks everyone and we'll talk with you next week bye bye